Tonight's Bible reading is from Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Amen. And may God bless that word. We're good? You can hear me? Yes? Sweet. Okay, very, very good. Well, welcome one and all. It is great to be here with you this evening. Uh, I trust you've enjoyed worshipping God so far. Oh, what delight. Now I can't get my phone to work. Here we go. That's one's working. That's good. Okay, so we are going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mountain. I just want to begin by relaying first and foremost a story from the Old Testament. And uh, this story is, of course, the account of King David and Bathsheba. And uh, it's not uncommon for us to assume that everyone knows this story, but I know there will be people amongst us who actually don't know it. It's from 2 Samuel 11. And it begins by telling us that King David uh, chose to stay home in Jerusalem rather than going out with the armies to fight as he would in this particular season and we don't know whether King David is bored or not but for some reason he is found wandering on his roof on this day and they often went up onto the roof because it was hot and they just stay up there but for some reason King David is on this roof and he looks over to a neighboring property and he sees this very beautiful woman she's naked and David is attracted to her and he inquires as to who she is and his servants are very wise in saying that this is Bathsheba, the wife, David, the wife of Uriah. And Uriah is one of King David's mighty men, someone who serves him faithfully. But even with this information, King David calls for Bathsheba knowing that she is married to another. He sends his servants to bring her and so the attendants get Bathsheba and she comes and David sleeps with her. She falls pregnant. David's gravely concerned that his sin would be found out so he devises this plan to bring Uriah back to Jerusalem so that he can trick Uriah into going and sleeping with his wife and then he'll think that the child she's carrying is hers. Unfortunately for King David, Uriah is much too faithful and he refuses to go down to his wife while his comrades are out fighting. And he's too loyal to King David and the army to actually do that. And so King David devises another plan where he puts Uriah on the front line and has him killed. King David, a man who we're told is a man after God's own heart. He doesn't seem to show any remorse. He doesn't seem to feel convicted at all because of these actions that he has done. By all accounts, he appears to have gotten away with murder. But then there's God. And in his incredible love, grace and mercy, he sends Nathan the prophet to King David to confront him and the sin that he has committed. 
And Nathan goes and he's very wise in his approach to King David. He doesn't tell him straight up that he's a sinner or anything like that. But he relays this story to him. And so Nathan tells King David a story about this rich man who stole the sheep of a poor man. And it's the only sheep that this poor man and his family owned. The rich man had countless sheep that he could have had. But instead he wants this sheep. He doesn't want to slaughter any of his own sheep. And he takes this poor man's sheep. And he slaughters it and he feeds it to his guests. Remember David's history. Remember where he came from. He was a shepherd. And he understands the connection here between a poor family that only has the one sheep that would have hand-raised it, would have slept with this sheep. And David is angry. He's enraged. And he declares to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, This man must die. No compromise. It's the only thing that is fitting for such a crime. And Nathan says, you are the man. Praise God. King David is broken. He recognizes the ugliness of his sin. He understands how wicked his actions have been. How he fed a desire which led to adultery and murder, and he repents, brokenhearted, before God. And we all know there was consequences as a result, but he repented before God. Let's pause and pray. Father God, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you it challenges and convicts. And Lord, again, I just pray you'll speak tonight. I ask that people will hear your voice, and I ask, Lord, that you, by power of Holy Spirit, will convict where that is needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, guys, we got my slides up. Yes, no, maybe. Yeah, now we'll go. Nope. There we go, sweet. Okay, hopefully that'll be the last issue we have with that. So I've given you an overview of King David. And it's my belief that as the prophet Nathan came to King David, Jesus comes to us. Jesus is speaking through his word now. And to men and women alike, he's saying, you are the man. Jesus starts from the same position as he did with the commandment that you shall not murder in Matthew 5.21. And he says here, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment as recorded in Exodus 20.14. And this was a commandment that was treated very seriously. In fact, if a couple were caught in adultery, there was only one punishment that was considered suitable, and that was death for both of them. It was not negotiable. There was no other thing that could be transferred. They would be killed, both of them. I want you to think about how you would react if I was to come off the stage and stand in front of each one of you and say... You shall not commit adultery. I'm sure many would rightfully not be worried as they haven't committed adultery. And in fact, uh, do not even have a trace or thought of such a thing. But I'm also sure that there'll be some who will deliberately take the high road. They'll declare boldly, maybe even loudly, that they've never slept with another man's wife or husband. Some of those who are married would take the same tack, saying that they've never betrayed their wife or family. And some may say, I'm not even married, so this sin doesn't even apply to me. And there may be some women 
who have switched off because this is really a matter for the guys who are here tonight and they need to sort this out and has little or no relevance to them. And Jesus says, if you think that you are righteous, that you have kept God's command simply by not cheating on your wife or by not sleeping with another's wife, you are mistaken. The thing is, King David's problem didn't start with that act of adultery, physically sleeping with Bathsheba. It started long before that as he gazed upon another woman who was not his wife. And in fact was the wife of another. And this section may seem to be pointed at men, but the sin of lust and sexual desire equally destroys women as it does men. Anyone who looks on another with lustful intent has already committed adultery. And Jesus says, you are the man. Or if you like, you are the one. You are the man or the woman who has done this. And Jesus moves on to reveal the original intent of the commandment. It isn't just about the physical act of adultery. Jesus moves past that. And he says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the spirit of this command is not commit adultery Sorry, to not commit adultery is one that reaches into our very hearts. It isn't just about what we do physically with our bodies, although that is part of it. It's also about what we look at with our eyes. It's what we dwell upon at times, what we fantasize about, what we lust after. So what are lustful thoughts? It's a craving, a sexual desire, motivated by self-gratification. It is not love. Far from it. Lust is concerned not with consequences. It couldn't care less. It looks to take action to get the gratification that they want and to get it now. It starts with that second look at an attractive man or woman. It can be fed by the books we read, the movies and TV shows we watch, pornography, dwelling on our impure thoughts, creating fantasies of being with a man or a woman who is not your husband or wife. It can even be flirting and many other things. And Jesus includes all of the sexually immoral here. And the standard that he's using is not the standard of the world. It's not the standard of our friends. It's not those things that people say, get over it. It's actually okay to do this. He's using his standard, the standard of God, the standard of the one who created sex, and he made it good. Jesus points to us and says, you, the church, are immoral. Anyone who looks on another with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them. Real or imagined, guilty as charged. And you know what? The sad thing is, many of us have formed the habit of dismissing or deflecting any questioning or guilt that may occur when we read passages like this. And again, I've experienced people supposedly Christians, who will take high ground in these cases. I never have and I never will commit such a thing. They exude this false righteousness or purity, maybe because historically sexual sin has been so frowned upon in the church. And regardless, these people take great pleasure in declaring that they were a virgin the night that they were married. And they, didn't, they hadn't gone all the way with their boyfriend or they haven't gone all the way with their girlfriend. And they say these things in order to crawl up on a self-made pedestal of sainthood so they can look down on others who've messed up. But 
Jesus is pointing at you. And he's saying, you are the man. He evaluates your thoughts. He evaluates the intentions of your heart. And God's standard doesn't excuse any of us. We all fall short. All of us. No exceptions. The righteous, the righteousness you think you have is nothing but filthy rags. We are in this together. Why am I emphasizing that we are all guilty? Because if we're going to experience true unity in the church, we need to work together. Accepting that when one of us sins, rather than pointing the finger, we need to come alongside and we need to seek to restore those who've made mistakes and we need to build them in the faith, grow them in their ability to stand against such sins. We must do it together. This can only happen if a sledgehammer is taken to those self-made pedestals and the person who needs to wield that sledgehammer is the person who set the pedestal up. You need to humble yourself before God. I need to humble myself before God. We are to be those people mentioned in Matthew 5.3 who are poor in spirit. A people who constantly return to God again and again, knowing the life we have is not something that I have earned or attained myself, something that you have not earned or attained yourself. It is a life that cannot be worked for. It's a life that involves no effort on our part. It is a gift that is freely given by Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. He died so we could be released from all bondage, the bondage of all sin and the bondage of death. And it's only when I constantly return to Jesus, relying on him and his strength alone, that I can have victory over those things which once controlled me. When in Jesus I can claim the promise of Romans 6.14 that sin has no dominion over me, it will not control me any longer. It is him who is Lord of my life. We don't have to be caught in the bondage of adultery or the bondage of sexual impurity. We can have rest from those impure thoughts, from the actions that stem from those thoughts. We can have a purified mind. And Jesus has a solution. Could you imagine what it would have been like standing or sitting there listening to Jesus? He talks about adultery. And then he says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose that one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I'm sure Pastor Darrell will be happy to carry out these ceremonies just out to the side here after the service if so needed. There you go. It all seems a bit extreme. We may be thinking that Jesus needs to take a bit of a step back and look at what is going on in the world. Some may even go as far as saying that he's out of touch with reality. Has anyone ever heard that about Christianity? I certainly have. And let's face it, that's the excuse that many use to not obey Scripture, and particularly when we're talking about sex. That it was written for another time and another place and it's not in touch with what is going on today. And what we need to realise is scripture and this message of Jesus is not out of touch with reality. We are. We are so shaped by the world around us in so many ways that we don't even notice that anymore. 
I want, to, I want you to think about the times you've found yourself nodding or agreeing to something that your friends have said simply because you wanted to fit in, when in reality you know that what they were saying was not good. It was counter to what God and his teaching says. I want you to think about those who've adopted that mantra, this is my body, I will do what I want with it. This alone has opened up the floodgates to all types of atrocities. But part of that mantra is, you do not have to listen to anyone else but yourself. Do what you please. It is your body. Don't listen to anyone else. You decide. And we can expect little thing else from the world. The world does not know our Lord and Saviour. They do not know His standards. But as Christians, we can never forget, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And what an incredible price that was. I want you to think about how out of control the world is sexually. Think about the ads. I remember William's shoes being advertised at one stage and had very little to do with the shoes that were on people's feet. Yeah, people are nodding. They remember that ad. And we're just bombarded with ads, billboards, TV commercials, cinema advertising that use all of these sexual images and innuendo to advertise all sorts of products. There's a whole range of sexy type ads at the moment that are advertising perfume. I don't even see how perfume relates to what's going on on the screen. And then there's the porn industry. It enslaves so many who are forced to commit unspeakable acts to satisfy the lust of men and women the world over. And we're not untouched by this. I've spoken to men and women, not just young adults, mind you, who are struggling in the area of pornography. They're struggling with impure thoughts. They're struggling with caressing. They're struggling with premarital sex and many other things. And it's something that's becoming more and more prevalent in the church. Again, I say we must stand united in opposing this. We must stand united in cutting this out of our, our, our people. And we must be willing to stand alongside them and help them. Uh, the Barna Group was commissioned in 2016 to do some statistics to find out how many people were engaging in viewing pornography. 68% of Christian men view pornography regularly. 68%. They view it at least once a month. 33% of women between the age of 13 to 24, Christian women, view pornography. And that number is increasing rapidly as more and more pornography is aimed and targeted at women. 55% of married men view pornography regularly. 33% of married women view pornography regularly. Our teens and young adults are in desperate need of our prayers and intervention and interceding on behalf of them. 66% of the teens and young adults today have received a sexually explicit message. Sexting. 66%. 41%. And one of themselves. 41%. And this generation of teens and young adults believe it's more immoral to not be recycling than viewing pornography. It's rampant. Sexually explicit images are printed on T-shirts, for crying out loud, which people openly wear. Women are more and more reading erotic fiction because of the wonderful love story that they contain. 
When Fifty Shades of Grey came out in 2011, I was appalled at the number of Christian women who read it. And worse than that, when they were challenged about reading it and how disgraceful that was, they defended their position and their right to read it. So often, when men and women are challenged about this, they say, what is the big deal? It is just sex. But whose standard are they using? So many men are ruled and controlled by porn and now a growing number of women. So many marriages destroyed, so many, many families broken up, so many children abused and destroyed to satisfy the sinful desires rampant in our world. And we're so caught up in this darkness around us that when Jesus challenges us and tells us to stop, we ignore him. We choose what we want to do. It is us who are out of touch with reality. And Jesus literally says, cut it out. Anything that causes you to sin, anything that even tempts you, needs to be removed completely, cut out of your life. And he's calling us to drastic action to escape the sin which leads to hell. Do you get that? It's a sin that leads to hell. He's saying, do whatever action is necessary in order to escape hell. Jesus is calling to you. If you have been transformed by the grace of God, then at one point you understand hell and all that that meant and you confessed your sin to him. So now why hang on to something which will lead you into hell? Carson says, what does Jesus mean if he is not calling us to hack off parts of our body? Just this, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, or enjoy nibbling a little around the edges. We are to hate it. We are to crush it. We are to dig it out. Amen? Great, I've got a dozen people with me. It is God alone who can give us the power and ability to overcome sin. We don't do this to earn a right standing before God. We do it because he saved us to be free from the bondage of sin. Friends, we need an urgency, a desperation to fight this sin. And I need to ask you, are you willing to take whatever action is necessary to cut this out of our lives, out of your life? I've got to tell you, it's worth fighting for. What we've been talking about today is something that is bad because it takes what is, was intended for good and it taints it, it cheapens it. And God does not condemn sex. He never has and he never will. God made sex and he made it incredibly good. But sex is sacred. There can be no greater intimacy between a man and a woman than that act of sex. And in Genesis, we're told, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he will cleave or hold fast or be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. God has set high walls around the covenant of marriage. It's to be between a man and a woman. It's a commitment God wants to last a lifetime. And it's something God ordained and that for alone is worth protecting. Sex was God's idea. He created it and he created it to be enjoyed. It'd be good for us to be able to talk about this more openly. So I'm suggesting young people after the service tonight, if you can go to the older married people and just ask them how good sex is. Oh, actually, we, we've got COVID restrictions, haven't we? Yeah, you can't do that tonight. Sorry, just keep that in the back of your mind and in the future when we can talk freely with each other, do that. I think it'll be good. Was is obviously first cab off the rank. He's at. <laughs> Sex is God's design and he designed it to be enjoyed. 
And because God made it, because I believe God knows what is best for us, and because he knows what is best with what he has made, we should want to honour God by reserving all sexual intimacy for within the sanctity of marriage. You've all been to weddings, and I believe there's no greater expression of trust than when that man and woman stands before each other and they say, forsaking all others, forsaking all others, I will cleave to you. She's literally saying, I'm going to be a one-man woman, and he's saying, I'm going to be a one-woman man. There's not going to be anyone else. It's just us. And there's nothing more powerful. And that's the way God intended it to be. Such a beautiful declaration. Adultery in all of its forms. All of its forms. Cheapens and dirties what God made good. He calls us, young people, he calls you to keep the marital bed pure because he knows what's best. What we've spoken about tonight is a violation of that declaration. Any sexual experience outside of marriage is adultery. The images, the thoughts, the masturbation, the porn, the flirting, the caressing, the physical act, anything that involves another person imagined or real in an intimate way that does not honour God is considered adultery by what is written here. What are you thinking right now? Are you being challenged like King David was challenged by Nathan? Are you thinking about how ugly some of your sin is and are you ready to confess that before Jesus? This is not about condemnation or conviction or anything like that. This is about purifying yourself and getting things right with God and saying, God, I want to do things the right way. I want to honour and glorify you with my relationship. I want to honour and glorify you with my thoughts. And we're all prone to have unwholesome thoughts slip into our minds, which we cannot help. But you know what? We don't need to make friends with them. And we shouldn't indulge or enjoy them. And what Jesus says here, he calls attention to our hearts and it's counter to what we want. So many of us want to dwell in that moment. We come to church, we let people think that we're following Jesus the way we should, but our thoughts are just so impure and we want to feed those thoughts. We want to have that gratification. We want to know what that's like. And we excuse wickedness and sin and evil as anything except what it really is. It's a moral degeneration which occurs when we make ourselves God of the one true God. We believe it's better to obey us than obeying him and what he has commanded. Let's not be a people who make those excuses. King David appeared to have no conviction, no guilt before Nathan came to him. And this is Jesus speaking to me. This is Jesus speaking to you. It's Jesus speaking to us. Do you feel that conviction? He's calling us to not make any excuses for those sins that so easily entangle us. And if we do, we make ourselves no different to the rest of the world when in reality we're worse than the rest of the world because in constantly returning to that sin, we are violating our confessed beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's like we're declaring that Jesus is not enough. God does not know what is best for me and my relationships. And the decisions and the actions we make are determined by what we value most. If you declare yourself a Christian, you are saying, I most value God, I most value his plans, I most value his purposes. You can't have it both ways. You are either honouring God with all of your life, which is what we are called to do, or you're not. And if you're not, you make yourself an enemy of God. So where do we go from here? First and foremost, we need to acknowledge that this sin is personal. We are told to cut off your hand, to gouge out your eye. This isn't about what others are doing. This isn't a comparison where you're not as bad as this person or that person. This is between you and God. Are you honouring God with your relationships? Are you honouring God with your thoughts? Are you honouring God with your life? Think about your eyes and think about your right hand. They're pretty valuable things, aren't they? And uh, I'd prefer not to lose either of mine if I could. But the call is to be willing to lose those things of great value in order to save your whole body from going into hell. If you're in a relationship that is sexually immoral, is it better for you to cut off that relationship and not be a part to that anymore? It's going to hurt, it's going to cost, it's going to cost you emotionally, but is that the best thing for you to do? Think about your internet access. If that's causing you to look upon images that you shouldn't be looking upon, then cut it off. Have nothing to do with the internet when you're at home, in your personal quiet times, things like that. When you're down from work, don't have access to the internet. That is a costly thing for so many because we live and breathe the internet at the moment. But are you willing to do that in order to honour God? So many people are turning back to just buying phones that don't have internet access. Why? Because the temptation is too great. Are you willing to make that step and sacrifice all of your friends on the internet so that you can honour and glorify God? I want you to kill your pride. I think we need to do that. This isn't about what others think of you. This is about your relationship with God. And I don't want you to allow your pride to prevent you from talking to someone to get help to control these things that are keeping you from honouring God. And quite simply, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Confess all you have done to him. Think about what King David did. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to guide you in keeping the marital bed pure and to not do these things which bring dishonor to him. God says, you do not have because you do not ask. If you ask for the strength and the power to overcome these things, he will give it to you. It doesn't mean you won't slip up again, but he invites you to come back to him afresh and to confess and ask him to help you once more. He's so willing to give. So do not give up. I know there's some of you who are fighting. There's some of you who are doing it tough at the moment. You're trying to overcome so many of this stuff and you slip up sometimes. But hey, you've already acknowledged your need of Jesus. You've already acknowledged that this is a problem. So don't give up now. Keep pressing into Jesus. Confess your sin. You are fighting the good fight. And I know sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we get tired of saying no to those sinful desires. But God is at work in you. 
He will not give up on you, so don't give up on yourself. He can and will equip and empower you to overcome. He has done so much in your life already, and he will continue to do more to complete that work. For all of us, remember who is speaking. It is not Charlie. It's Jesus. He didn't give up a right hand or an eye. He gave up all of himself. The cross he was nailed to were for the sins you committed. He took drastic action, becoming the lamb that was slain for Charlie, the lamb that was slain for you. So that even though our lives are filled with sin, although we had lustful, ungodly thoughts, he would be completely and totally able to cleanse us before God. We have been made new, accepted, loved for all of eternity. We are living in a world that is enemy territory, but the kingdom of God has come into our hearts. Jesus has been victorious. He has conquered and he will have the last word. The one who was slain for our sin is the one who's calling us to turn from anything that would cause us to sin so we can take our place at the foot of the cross. There's forgiveness for each of us, each and every one who is hearing my voice. There is forgiveness in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this message. It's a tough message, Lord. But Lord, I pray by power of Holy Spirit, you'll be putting your finger on the people here who need to deal with this, the people at home who need to deal with this. And that, Lord, you'll purify their minds, you'll smash their pride, so they will see their need to humbly confess their sin before you, and that we will be given opportunity to walk alongside them and help them, Lord, to carry them at times so they can overcome, so they can be victorious through the power of Holy Spirit and thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I'm sure your desire is that people don't leave tonight if they need to deal with this, that they'll seek out a pastor, they'll seek out a close Christian friend, they'll seek that opportunity to beg for your forgiveness this evening and that they will rise to new life as a result. Continue to minister, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.